Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hi. Well, very short and to the point there. No hello <laughs> there, General Kenobi, or anything like that? No, just going straight mm. in this week. Not this time. Fair enough. Um, well, what have you been up to, Aaron? Um, to be honest, this week, not much. Yeah, not not much, I'm afraid. I still haven't managed to get a photo of that red kite, but I am watching him every every day, twice a day. So, And that's really cool. Um, he's almost, not quite, but almost predictable. <laughs> not predictable enough for you to get some good pictures, though. I will do eventually, yeah. Yeah. Anything else, or has it just been trying to predict red kites? No, no. I've honestly, I've been so bad this this week for for this kind of thing, um, and it hasn't helped that between recordings we've had a like we've had what the Brits would call a massive storm, but what others would call a bit of rain and wind. Um, this is true. Interestingly enough, this morning, which is is or the morning of us recording this, there was a huge amount of rain and thunder. Uh, for a very brief period uh, over the the town where I live, and I'm assuming it passed you by as well. Yeah, we got two claps of thunder. One, the first one, sounded like it was right over where I worked, and everything in the whole place shook. Mm. Uh, it was really impressive. The second one was impressive, but uh, it was further away. So, it, do you want to know where that one effective. hit? Yeah, okay. Because the first one to me sounded much further away. That was. Obviously, over towards where you are. Um, mm. The second one actually hit out in the forest, like the lightning strike hit out in the forest at the back of our our house. Really? Because <laughs> I received a uh, a message from 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 Paris, my other half, saying that it had basically made the whole building shake. The uh, the thunderclap from directly, you know, like right next to it, yeah, and it's everything went white outside of the it windows. Is... It's something to behold. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I can I can agree with with Paris there because I was when I was in Thailand, I experienced very similar. I had just come out of the sea because thunder and lightning was coming in. Um, like a perfectly was, logical place to be. Yeah, I I was <laughs> sat there with this uh, with a, a German guy that I'd I'd become quite good buddies with when I, whilst I was out there uh, in this cafe, and just as we started to drink. The thunder started to get closer, and then, and all of a sudden, it was like a bomb had gone off. The white was blinding, and it mm. basically hit not very far away from us on the on the road. It was an incredible. It sounded like it sounded like the earth just split open. It was an amazing sound. Yeah, I'm annoyed that I didn't get to see it. I was uh, was at work, but it was it was close enough as to mm. where I work from, obviously where I live, that. The whole building that I was in there, even though it's a quite a rickety building, shook quite violently as well. It's uh, <laughs> it was a decent old thunderclap today, so that was uh that was I'm going to say well fairly fairly interesting sort of event. That and I've been hanging around with horses today, which is a very odd. Oh, thing that's interesting for you. I know I'm you're not, not you're not not a very horsey horses, person, but uh, there were some nice horses there. Mm. You know, I'm uh, I'm not renowned for my horse. Horsiness. They invited you to ride it, and you said nay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you ain't getting, you ain't getting me on one of those things. <laughs> I feel far more at home with, um, I would say, the subject of uh, this week's creature feature than I would uh, on the back of a horse. But uh, to be shall fair, we? The species that's involved in this week's creature feature is a species that I used to commonly say I'd rather be locked in a room with that than with a wasp. <laughs> so uh, uh i mean okay <laughs> know which one's more dangerous it's not the wasp oh, certainly but, uh, <laughs> i know your fear of wasps so yeah should we um should we launch into uh the news for this week then let's do it cool do it it's the news Right, well, we're into the news for this week. Aaron, take us out. 
certainly will. Every week, we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our Natural History Cupboard Newsreel, where we've compiled some of our more interesting headlines, and dive on in. And I think I've got the first one today. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one comes to us from CBBC Newsround, which is one I've not used before. But no, every now can't and then, say you've used them before. No, every now and then they have a golden nugget of of uh, of intel, and uh, today is one of those days. So a new cat species has been found in Spain that lived 15 million years ago. A jawbone found near Madrid has been identified by the National Museum of Natural Sciences in Spain. The fossilized specimen represents a new species of a cat named Majorifelis pagenii, I think, uh, in honor of where it was found. It lived around 15.5 million years ago and likely shared behavioral traits seen in the modern Iberian lynx. Uh. Yeah, always nice to have a new cat. Yeah. Uh, I've got one from Vet Times, uh, which is a, well, I'd say I think uh, uh, the first time I've used it, there's certainly quite a few stories that turn up in there every now and again. Mm. Uh, A coalition of organizations has issued an open letter calling for protection and restoration of wild ecosystems to be at the heart of global global climate change policy and action. The letter signed by representatives from 18 different organizations uh, was discussed at the COP28 conference in Dubai and comes in light of new research showing that rewilding viable populations of wild animals can enable terrestrial and marine ecosystems to absorb vast amounts more carbon than without. Very good. I got another um, first for a news source this week. It's uh, It comes to us from San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, and the headline is Nation's Largest Dam Removal Marks Milestone, the freeing of a major California river. So the USA's largest dam removal project will see water held behind three dams on the Klamath River released. The result was made possible thanks to decades of effort on the part of indigenous peoples, environmentalists and fishermen advocating for the Klamath River to be returned to its natural natural state sorry to allow fish populations such as the chinook salmon uh to the chance to bounce back i'm assuming that is the removal of a dam dam as opposed to getting rid of that dam river yeah so uh my next one comes from the bbc and i saw this and instantly showed you because i i it turned up whilst we were both out at a, a similar event Celebrating our fellow cupboard dweller, Drew. Um, This was a BBC article that is the Hot Fuzz style chase as Wiltshire Police rescue Signet. Hmm. Uh, A Signet has been found (laughs) on a busy A road, which has been rescued by police in a Hot Fuzz style incident. Uh, Essentially, they they had luck catching that swan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And returning it uh, from the A361 an officer was pictured chasing the signet down the busy road, bearing striking similarities to the moment Simon Pegg's character in the, the comedy catches an escaped swan. Uh, quoting the, the film on Facebook, the force said, no luck catching them swans then. Yeah, it's just the one, actually. <laughs> oh, uh, I'll be heading back over to more familiar news, uh, news source territory now with Live Science, whose article is that's a huge amount of movement for a single mammoth. Woolly female's steps retraced based on chemistry of 14,000-year-old tusk. So analysis of a 14,000-year-old woolly mammoth tusk has revealed the life story of a well-traveled female. The specimen reveals that the individual made the 620-mile journey from her birthplace in Yukon, Canada, to eastern central Alaska, where she was killed at the age of 20, by early Beringian hunter-gatherers. Her tusk was found at one of the oldest archaeological sites in the Americas, known as Swan Point, and the scientists have named her El Mayujea uh, in the Casca language, which means hella-looking. 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 <laughs> Assuming they didn't mean it in exactly that light. Um, so I've got from the Coloradian... Colo- 
Colorado, Coloradian. Colorado. It's a newspaper from it's a newspaper <laughs> from Colorado. Um, public captures first images of Colorado's reintroduced wolves after December release, and it's quite a nice, striking photo of a wolf sitting up on some rocks with the sun uh, on top of it. So really nice, actually. The yeah. first images of one of Colorado's uh, released wolves in the wild was captured on January the second in Grand Country. Oh, sorry, in Grand County. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirmed that the Col- to the Coloradian uh, on January 10th that the photo is of one of the released wolves. And the photo comes after representatives of the Wilder Ranch located near Yampa in the southern Route County uh, said that in a video on Instagram on December 22nd uh, that on the 21st, the family saw what they believed were four of the five wolves from the Colorado's initial wolf release on December the 18th. So some good wolf news there. Wonderful. Um, And my last one for this week, again, a new news source. It comes to us from Newsweek. Winter weather warning of falling iguanas issued for Florida. So as many parts of Britain are enduring or getting over severe weather warnings for rain and wind, Floridians are being advised to choose caution when out and about for the sky is raining iguanas. Uh, all right, not exactly raining them as such, but but nearly. <laughs> oh, I hate that really bad iguana weather. It's, it's raining cats and dogs and iguanas. <laughs> raining cats, dogs and grumpy lizards. Um, essentially, the somewhat large lizards are getting caught by surprise during the cold snap brought on by the Arctic winds tormenting much of the US right now. Apparently, when temperatures hit around the 7 degrees Celsius mark, so that's 45 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, uh, the lizards get far too cold to cope, and they drop, apparently often enough onto the heads of unsuspecting pedestrians with enough regularity to warrant a warning being issued across the state. Hmm. <laughs> My... My... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I just <laughs> continued laughing there for a good couple. Of... Uh, my final article uh, is from the Guardian, and it's um, BBC amends Attenborough show to give fossil hunter more credit for pliosaur find. And oh, this great. is um, this is about Philip Jacobs, who was originally named only in the credits of the the documentary that recently came out about uh, Attenborough and the giant sea monster. He's the fossil hunter who found the 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 front end of the snout of the new pliosaur that was featured in that documentary. Um, and in fact, he only received a name check originally. And there was many complaints that Philip Jacobs had essentially been airbrushed out of the documentary. Uh, he discovered the 150 million year old fossilized pl- uh, pliosaur uh, during a walk on the beach in Dorset and was only fleetingly mentioned in the credits uh, rather than in the main body of the show. Of the, uh, in the main body of the much lauded show more than 5,000 people signed a petition that criticised the BBC and called for the credits uh, the creature to be named after Jacobs the makers of the programme have now gone back uh, back to the iPlayer version of the show and inserted the caption original discovery footage courtesy of, uh, courtesy of Philip Jacobs uh, over his video clip at the moment he finds the fossil his name has also um, been moved to the top of the with thanks to section in the end credits. Uh, and Jacobs has written an article entitled How I Discovered the Giant Sea Monster for the BBC Show. So it actually shows that um, quite often people can very easily be overlooked in things like this. Saying mm. that, though, um, it takes you know more than one person to obviously find and describe a new species. But it would be nice if the, uh, the new species did end up getting some reference to him uh name wise i think yeah yeah that's really good that he got his uh he got the, a little bit more recognition hmm. well that about wraps it up for this week's news real installment remember if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest that you think we should cover send them in uh you can do so using any of the normal ways that you can contact us and you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in the main topic discussion. And with that said, it's uh, it's my turn this week. And we're heading on over to fizz.org online, uh, where the headline reads, Red deer populations in Europe more influenced by humans than by wolves or other predators, ecologists find. Now, I chose this one very much deliberately because 
This is it's the got club. wolves. <laughs> no, well, that's always cool, but it, it it was very deliberate because this is the type of article that um you know like your your aunties anti uh anti rewilding and anti wolves they're gonna jump on this and so I wanted to put a little bit of context uh out there that isn't in the article isn't isn't so much in the article as much as I would have liked it to be really um so basically uh this was an international study led by wildlife ecologists from the University of Freiburg uh it was investigated uh, sorry, it was investigating factors that affect red deer population density. And they found that the population density of red deer is influenced primarily by human hunting and land use. I mean, go figure, uh, but not predators. The data for the study uh, was collected from 492 study sites across 28 countries in Europe. It analyzed a myriad of factors, including habitat productivity, the presence of large carnivores, human activity, climatic variables, and the protection status of the area. The, uh, the evaluation of which uh, demonstrated that red deer populations were reduced more by human hunting than the presence of all large carnivals. On the other hand, human land use worked to increase red deer population density. I think this is all pretty obvious, really. Um, pretty much. <laughs> The study also found that the presence of any large carnivore species didn't affect the red deer population numbers, but that the presence of the big three, bears, wolves, and lynx, together, uh, they did reduce deer numbers. However, the study did not investigate and therefore does not reflect, and this is the thing that I really want people to take home, it didn't investigate and doesn't reflect how the presence of these predators affects the red deer population's behavior. The numbers are one thing, the behavior is something entirely different. So the researchers also claimed that high mortality uh, due to road traffic accidents affects the wolves alone from being able to impact red deer population density significantly. And that the high variability found in red deer population density suggests that there may actually be cases where these predators do impact deer numbers in absence of other carnivores. The article and study could be falsely interpreted as wolves don't affect red deer populations and this is why i wanted to jump on it um which because basically this is the type of thing like i said that the hunting fraternity would jump on to just justify their activities but i want to stress this is not the case it stands to reason that humans kill more red deers than wolves do predators hunt when they need to feed humans hunt for something that they call sport uh there's also more humans than there are any of these predator species um, so there's more chance of us doing it. And the key thing about predator impact is how their presence and their activities don't necessarily impact the prey numbers, but the prey behavior and the life habits of, of the prey species. The presence of humans cause deer to run short distances and it contributes to keeping their numbers down in absence of the predators. So why does the environment still suffer from poor health as an ecosystem whilst places with Yellowstone, with their wolves returned, and now Colorado, will be seeing such more far-reaching and deep cleansing ecological benefits. And that is because the predators, in this case wolves, but also bears and lynx, influence the deer's behavior. The activity of predators, uh, that they come randomly, that they stalk herds and haunt territories, creates an air of fear. Death could very well be behind every tree or under every log. The deer are forced to keep moving, forced to change up their routines. And this gives vast swaths of the land and plant life the time necessary to rest and regenerate. Under human influence, numbers can be kept down, but overbrowsing and tree disease and imbalance in the trophic cascades will remain three of the whole menu list of problems that predatorless environments will suffer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I quite agree that they are the obvious um well ecosystem engineers i suppose it's a it's mm -hmm. a phrase we used far too too much sometimes but it's i'd say it's true because they're the the creatures that maintain the balance a lot better and certainly do it in a far more measured amount than than obviously humans do because as you as you rightly said we tend to focus in on um hunting out the ones that we want to hunt so 
with things like deer, that's obviously going to be the biggest, most impressive male. So you're you're selectively culling out any and all big, impressive animals, which means that you end up with um, a selection bias in in how yeah. the animals survive. Yeah. So yeah. No, I I very much agree. Well, like I say, it's it's um, you know, you can walk up on, uh, for example, Exmoor any day, and you'll see deer around, and you'll also see the barren landscape that they live in. But uh, you go to these places like Yellowstone, and because the the deer are constantly migrating through the through the area, constantly aware of the imminent threat that wolves and others pose to them, you've yeah. got large areas of mountainside that are covered in tree life again you've got um you've you've got uh you've got a lot less over browsing and over grazing and so plant life is healthier tree life is healthier soil structure is is healthier and stronger and more supportive of the uh thanks to the root systems that helps the rivers to flow it prevents erosion Uh, it also keeps the floods at bay it attracts you know your beavers the beaver dams attract the amphibians the fish uh lizards insects small birds small mammals and and then it increases in size as you go like um you can't replace the impact that a natural predator has with no not, not even close in a red coat and a and a and a rifle with a with a silly horn Mm, definitely well should we go on from talking about one ecosystem engineer and uh, heading to our creature feature for this week which is coincidentally about uh, another ecosystem engineer it's the creature feature right well we're into this week's creature feature Aaron, i want to start this week off uh, with a question for you what would you say is the most iconic reptiles of north america most iconic reptiles of North America, or the 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 most iconic reptile that you can think of. I, I mean, there's two that instantly come to mind for me. But there's there's uh there's two that come to mind for me. I know that one will will be right. I don't think the other one will be right. So I'll start off with the one that I think is wrong. I mean, there's no answer. The there's no right. one. There's no one. There's no one answer to this. You wait till we get like messaged by. North Americans who say that there is only one answer. <laughs> so the one I think won't be on your list is the Western rattlesnake. Well, it the is. Western diamondback rattlesnake. Yeah, is yeah. it really on your list? I didn't yeah. think that one would be on your list. That's actually uh, on my creature feature list. Mm. And I can understand why. I mean... Um, amazing animal. Out of out of all the, the reptiles, that's the second one. And I'll go into what you know is the, the, the one that I've basically thought of as being... Uh, yeah, I think I think my number iconic. one, my number one is going to be what you're about to talk about. So yeah, rattlesnake. Uh, obviously, I mean, it's one of those ones that seems to have a, a weird dual place in American culture. Uh, mm. By the looks of it, you have people who have them on flag that say "Don't tread on me," and it all becomes a whole political thing. But you you have people who appreciate this animal for its fierce beauty and uh it's it's amazing defense mechanism you know it's it's one of a kind in the snake world and then you have people who uh unfortunately treat them horribly and kill them and round them up and stitch their mouths yeah, closed for there's like... an annual there is an annual snake roundup isn't there it's pretty disgusting you mean, you mean there's an annual snake massacre yeah 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 but as much as i'd love to go on about rattlesnakes uh and as gorgeous they are as they are and i'm sure we'll get to them with you in the future uh, I'm here for the other most iconic reptile of the Americas, and that is the alligator. Uh, one of my mm. all-time favorite reptiles, and I would actually say uh, my all-time favorite crocodilian. It's in a close second with the saltwater crocodile. Um, yeah, I, I go back and forth. On which oh, one it's, of those it's hard to tell. I, I like both of them. It's also the first crocodilian that I got to properly work with as well. So it, it holds a special place in my heart for for that purpose so what is an alligator you know it's a question that i'm sure some people have asked murder log (laughs) well we'll get to names in a bit as well while an alligator is a type of crocodile you often have people confusing the two of them calling alligators crocodiles or crocodiles alligators there are some really obvious and easy ways to identify them 
Uh, Aaron, uh, would you like to insert the dad joke here? Well, a, a crocodile will see you in a while, but an alligator will see you later. There you go. Um, it took me a while. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, that's, um, I mean, as good as that is, that's not exactly the, uh, the, the most scientifically accurate way to tell them apart. The easiest way is to look at their head shape. Crocodiles mm-hmm. have the yeah. very classic triangular shaped head, whereas yeah. alligators have a much more rounded, I've heard people describe it as sort of frog faced. Uh, it is a little way. bit. Yeah. Crocodiles often have what's called a snaggle tooth as well, which is basically where one of the teeth from the lower jaw points up and goes up past the um, the upper jaw, whereas alligators don't have that. They do have teeth that hang down from their upper jaw, but they don't have any from the lower jaw uh, pointing up past the top mm. jaw. And that's the easiest way to, to um, work out if it's an alligator or a crocodile. Another issue that would come from trying to tell them apart is uh, where they live. Um, and this is true for both species of alligator because, well, you basically find crocodiles and alligators living in the same habitat. Uh, and that's true for the American alligator, uh, which is found uh, up close with the Cuban crocodile, as well as the American crocodile uh, in various different parts of its range. And also the Chinese alligator, which obviously comes from China, which can uh, yeah. in can often inhabit the same places as things like mugger crocodiles or gharials or Nile crocodiles, uh, saltwater crocodiles uh, on occasion. But they can possibly be confused. But if you look at the face, you will be able to see that there is that main difference in the in the shape. Personally, I think alligators have a much cuter face than crocodiles do. A deceptively cuter face, yeah, I think yeah, so. I want to get in there and give them a good hug. Good, good squeeze. <laughs> so, what's in a name? What did you uh, call it, Aaron? A murder log? Murder log, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have I've heard, heard them called swamp puppies. I think swamp you called puppies. it a swamp yep, puppy. Yep. Swamp puppies comes from uh, me watching a um, slightly insane person in, uh, I assume, Florida, um, which is, I mean, insane things I, in Florida go together. I like... feel like I'm going to have seen the same video. Um, basically, he goes out and collects, introduced reptiles in the Everglades yeah. and captures them. And he calls uh, alligators swamp puppies, which is why I now absolutely love that name for them. I think that's the perfect, perfect it name. It's a good fits. name for them. But where does the name alligator come from? Uh, uh, it's it's actually an anglicized version of alligadro, which is Spanish for the lizard. Oh, right. OK. I didn't know that. So their their scientific name is Alligator Mississippiensis, which yep. essentially means the lizard of Mississippi, if you uh, want to break it down that way. And it's because when Spanish explorers turned turned up in uh, the southeastern corner of America, so Florida and parts of Louisiana and, and all those sort of places, they would have obviously seen something uh, that, um, well, resembled a lizard. I, I have a feeling that they should have probably settled on calling it the bloody big lizard. Uh, mostly because there are no Spanish lizards that are even close to this in size. So uh, it must have been a bit of a shock for the first conquistador to uh, to have come across one of these fellas. But yes, that's where the name alligator comes from. It is is essentially just an anglicized version of, of Spanish. Where do we find alligators? Most of Most of you are probably familiar with the sort of habitat that most crocodilians uh, live in because, well... That's, that's pretty much the same for all species of crocodilian. They live in water. They like to hang out in areas where they can hide and wait for their food to come to them and then spring out and grab a hold of them. Uh, but American alligators, obviously, as what we're focusing on, you'll find them in the southeastern corner of the United States. So uh, pretty much all of Florida is home to alligators uh, in the Everglades and um, the uh, the rivers and swamps and streams that you'll find around there. Louisiana, in the bayous as well, you'll find that there are uh, another big area for alligators to live, uh, the same mm. sort of swampy habitat. They're also found in southern parts of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. There is also quite a high population of them in South and North Carolina uh, and East Texas, as well as the southeastern corner of Oklahoma and the southern tip of Arkansas. So they are pretty widespread. It's basically that southeastern corner of the U.S. And they're all pretty much the same sort of habitat, swampy uh, terrain where they can hide out and wait for their, their prey to come to them. 
So numbers wise, Louisiana actually has the largest alligator population, which was a bit of a shock whilst doing the research for this uh, this creature feature, uh, because I would have assumed that it was Florida. Uh, mm. It's it's pretty much what you think of when you think of alligators. But combined, Florida and Louisiana actually have the majority of all American alligators in the U.S. Uh, there are over a million alligators in each state, um, which is actually a really encouraging thing as American alligators were actually endangered uh, at one point and almost hunted into extinction. Uh, So to see their numbers in the millions is a really, really good thing. Uh, And it means that that habitat um, is there. They are basically protected and, and the, the risk of people hunting them for skin and for meat is much, much less than it used to be. So, like I say, the sort of habitats these guys you'll find them in are swamps, ponds, marshes, rivers, lakes, brackish water. They've even been known to swim out to sea and along the coast, essentially anywhere where they can set up and hide away. They'll usually find a nice wetland swamp with lots of plants to disguise themselves. Now, obviously, they're going to be wanting there to be lots of food. So they will obviously predate areas where there's going to be easy food that comes down to the water's edge or something in the water. Uh, And they will essentially just then sit there and wait for their food to come to them. So that's why you get that very, well, standard image of an alligator or lots of alligators in a swamp just lying there. They They don't chase after their prey. They wait for things to come to them. It's a much easier way of life, if you ask me. Just sit there and wait for the food to walk to you. Believe it or not, alligators uh, used to be, at one point, exceedingly common animals. In fact, crocodilians, as we've talked about many times on this uh, podcast, uh, used to be spread all over the world. But now we're just left with the two species, uh, the Chinese and the North American uh, alligator. But if you were to go back far enough, you'd find that this group actually has surprisingly widespread so you'd actually found these guys in a lot more surprising places, which we'll get onto in a second. Alligators are definitely crocodilians, uh, and they split from their closest cousins, the caimans, which you will find throughout uh, Southern and Central America. In North America, so they split from them in North America during the late Cretaceous period, or maybe actually sometime into the tertiary, so just after the extinction of the dinosaurs. They're not 100% sure. It's somewhere in a time period of around 53 to 65 million years ago. Um, So, you know, quite a decent period of time. But at that point, they split from their closest cousins. We then end up with the the Chinese alligator splitting from its American cousin somewhere around 33 million years ago uh, from a group of alligators that had crossed the land bridge into Asia during this point uh, with a lot of other animals that, uh, that exchanged into different parts of the world. And we would then come to see alligators throughout Eurasia uh, at this point and found in a variety of different countries where you would not obviously think alligators to exist today. And in fact, alligators are actually well represented in the fossil record, well into the Pleistocene epoch, so right into what most people consider the Ice Age. Uh, And this also includes the UK on this list of countries that at one point would have been home to a species of alligator. Uh, And at some point in the past, we did, in fact, actually have British alligators. Uh, And I've seen one or two fossils of them in, I believe, the London Museum, not the Natural History Museum, but the London Museum, which makes a a point of going over the different fauna that lived in London during different periods of time. Everything from cave lions and macaques and stuff like that. Basically, Mm -hmm. every animal that you wouldn't expect to see in Britain today. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, the full mitochondrial genome of alligators was actually published uh, around 2014. And evidence from this full genome readout has actually shown that alligators have evolved at a much, much slower rate than other animals like birds and mammals. Uh, And this is backed up by fossil alligator species from the Americas being pretty much indistinguishable from their modern day counterparts uh, in not just appearance, but probably, obviously, even in lifestyle. So they are a a truly remarkable uh, type of crocodilian. So behavior-wise, alligators have some pretty amazing abilities. I think a lot of people would think of them as just dumb animals that just wait there for stuff to float to them. Uh, They are, in fact, incredibly intelligent for what they do. They remember 
where prey has been and they will remember the most likely times that animals will turn up and they get that to such a degree that some will come on command to people who have alligators living near their property um probably shouldn't be encouraging them to be fed like feeding the pigeons in a park but some people certainly do do that now they are highly territorial animals this is basically as they get older they start to gain size and they start to become more solitary and they won't tolerate others coming into their territory more so with males but females will also get that way as they start to age uh, and they won't tolerate any others hanging around in their part of the river you will see that young younger individuals much smaller alligators will often congregate together uh, and this is mostly just to act as protection in numbers and they're a, a bit happier to be around each other but obviously as they start to grow they don't want to be anywhere near each other which is obviously a bit of an issue when we see alligators in big alligator farms or you know crocodile parks where they have loads and loads of them just stashed together just to basically fill out a pond now they will be okay with this to an extent because there is more food than they would obviously come across in the wild, but it's not great for their behavior uh, in the long run and certainly shouldn't be crammed together for tourist attractions and things like that. They should be given enough space to be able to separate from each other. Yeah, It's, it's kind of going against the natural behavior of these animals as they start to age. Now, we don't always see alligators in the water. There's some fairly good videos uh, out there on the internet of alligators out of the water. And they can move around in two particularly good ways. Now, one of them is better than the other. Uh, the first one is the sprawled posture, where they basically drag themselves with their belly in contact with the ground. This is usually as they're coming out of the water or just by the water. They're not putting a lot of effort into moving around. And it's just a simple way of sliding themselves back into a river. The other way is called the high walk posture. And this is where they lift their body completely off the ground and will walk across terrain. Sometimes for a good, for a good day or two before they find a new river or pond system, as they obviously start to age, they want to try and find areas that are more open to them and parts of their range, Florida, Louisiana, all these places have lots of small inlets and streams and rivers and ponds. So there is a good amount of them moving over land at different points to be able to find new sources of food. And they're remarkably good at moving on land. They can also pick up a little bit of speed as well. You wouldn't want to annoy one because it could certainly chase after you and there are some videos where people have done exactly that and had an alligator chase after them so the other most important thing about alligator behavior is how they wait for their prey they do this by sitting there with their eyes just above the waterline their nostrils just above the waterline and that's pretty much it you don't tend to see much else because the alligator is hidden from view whilst it's hunting if they're not they tend to be a bit more visible and the best way to actually spot an alligator is of a night. You, if you use a torchlight, you can see the shine coming off their eyes and realize just how many little faces are watching you in the water. Now, what <laughs> they're looking the for... Water. Sorry? The watchers in the water. The watchers in the water, definitely. And what they're looking for is anything from small rodents, uh, rats, right the way up to beavers even, they will quite happily take um, birds, everything from ducks, geese, egrets, herons, you name it. They'll quite happily eat fish, obviously. They'll quite happily take them. They will also quite happily take things up to the size of deer. They have also been known to take wild boar. And they will also, and this is quite an odd one, on occasion been known to actually attack and eat pumas and wolves. Hmm. So... Um, quite the uh the decent sized meal they have obviously been known to attack and eat people as well so it's going to be a fairly decent sized alligator that's taking on a wolf uh or a coyote or a, a puma but also big enough to obviously take a person and the way that they they go about destroying and i do mean destroying their prey uh, and killing it in the process is by doing that very classic death roll so once they've grabbed a hold of their prey their teeth are very, very conical in shape and are 
eggs for holding on to their prey. They will then pull the animal back into the water and start rolling. This is for one of two reasons. One, it kills the animal through just violent thrashing, essentially, or drowning it. The other reason is alligators don't have teeth to chew with. Their teeth are there to hold on to their prey, and that's about it. So they have to rip their prey into pieces through just that classic death roll of spinning and spinning and ripping chunks off their prey. Whilst they've done this massive amounts of damage uh, to the, the prey's body, they can then find bits that have ripped off and be able to swallow them whole. So diet, uh, look, just a little bit more on their diet and how uh, their diet works, because they do have another way of getting a hold of prey. Now, there are one or two videos that I've come across of some truly amazing behavior from an alligator, it getting a hold of a terrapin and crushing it in its in its mouth. Aaron, have you seen any of those videos? Yes, I've seen very similar videos. Yeah. It's, it's quite a disturbing thing, obviously, to see, but... Mm. It shows the power that is in their jaws. They are a lot stronger in their their downforce and sort of crushing uh, bite than a lot of the other crocodilians because they've got those sort of broader jaws that allow them to put pressure in the right places to crack open turtle shells uh, and then be able to break them into smaller pieces. So they don't need to do a death roll on something that they can obviously crush in their mouth. They actually do also have gizzard stones inside of their gut. Because just like birds, they obviously don't have teeth for chewing. So anything that they do swallow, they will obviously need to break down inside of them. This obviously helps keep the alligator uh, healthier. And alligators themselves are also a really, really important part of the ecosystem in keeping it healthy as well. There has been quite a bit of uh, research looking at their importance in controlling the population of nutrias and introduced rodent from South America. Uh, into parts of New, uh, North America. Uh, they basically are doing a really good job at controlling the numbers of them. In the areas where the alligators are, there's less nutria. They do play a really important role. And they obviously take out the sick, the elderly, and uh, infirm animals and help keep the place nice and clean by clearing up the mess and eating it. So they do a really, really important job. And not a lot of people give them the credit that they... Uh, that they deserve. So now we get to another part of their behavior and the part of their behavior that I find really fascinating, and that's their reproduction and courtship. Now, it's not so much their reproduction that I find fascinating. It's the courtship that alligators undergo because it is by far one of the most memorable experiences and sounds that I've ever heard from any animal ever. Uh, and this is something that they are relatively famous for, but I will get onto the sounds bit in just a second. So alligators reach sexual maturity, usually at around the, the length of about six foot, 1.8 meters. Their mating season is in late spring, which is generally when the most food is available. Uh, and they can obviously reproduce a lot easier because there's going to be uh, more resources for them. Yeah, not so much competition. Little, oh, there's going to be more tolerance. Plenty of competition still, but yes, there's that more food around that makes the whole thing that a little bit easier. Between April and May, alligators will start to call to each other and let them know that their territory uh, is there and to let others know, clear off, this is clearly my territory. And, uh, you know, the, the same thing that happens with most animals, protecting their territory from other males coming into it and calling over all the females to say hello. And this is the part of their, their mating that I find absolutely amazing. The cause of this animal is like nothing I've experienced before. The alligators that I worked with in the past, the big male alligator that was there, used to do this every spring. He, he used to bellow, and that's the, the call that it's... it's mm. uh, well, that's, that's the name of the call. And essentially what they do is they raise their tail and raise their head out of the water and then create these powerful infrasonic growls almost with their uh, their body, which makes the water on their back dance. It looks like the water is actually boiling. It's an yeah. absolutely amazing thing. It is so powerful as well. It vibrates the air in your lungs. So you could be standing there and you feel it go through you. You don't even necessarily have to be in the same building as them to do it. 
and um, you could hear it from a good distance away. That obviously carries in the water quite a good uh, distance as well, more than it does in the air. And it lets any other female alligators in the area know that that is the biggest, most sexy alligator. Um, in fact, hopefully, or hang on, uh, this is the sound now. doesn't really do it justice <laughs> but it's um it, it is an impressive sound uh just try and turn up your speakers so loud that it makes the air in your lungs vibrate you might destroy whatever speakers you're listening to us through <laughs> but yeah it is a truly bizarre sound now if that all goes well and the his booming calls obviously call in the girls uh he will then end up mating and the females will then start to build a nest, a nest of vegetation. Now, obviously, they don't nest like a traditional bird uh, or anything does. They build a nest of rotting vegetation, which does all the work for them. They'll go up, they'll dig a pit, they'll find lots of uh, reeds and material, uh, lay their eggs into it, and they let the heat of the decomposing vegetation around it basically incubate the eggs, do all the work for them. The female will stay close, though, and possibly one of the biggest mistakes you could ever make if you went walking into a swamp would be getting too close to a female alligator's nest because she will launch herself out of the water to viciously protect her eggs. Now, the incubation is approximately uh, 63 to 68 days. At this point, the eggs will start to hatch. This is somewhere around mid-August into early September. Now, Aaron, did you know that just like turtles, the depth of the soil uh, and the nest determines the ratio of males to females. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That is why climate change is an ever-increasing threat to animals like this, because if you have an imbalance of males or females, obviously it decreases the chances of uh, a good uh, amount of animals being bred. The female will then uh, listen out for the baby's call, uh, which is that very classic little baby crocodile sound uh, that most of them, if not all of them do, that calls the female in. She'll then dig them out of the nest and they will then come into the water with her. She'll carry some of them back uh, where they'll then uh, settle down in the water. They'll start catching small insects. They'll hang around with her for about a week or two, by which point she kind of loses interest in them and then will disappear. She will, in that meantime, obviously still be protecting them from any predators, including other alligators. But after that point, they're pretty much on their own and they have to start fending for themselves. And they'll hang out in the reeds, catching smaller stuff until they start to grow. So I couldn't talk about alligators without talking alligators and people, because alligators play a huge part in the culture of this part of America, of the southern uh, the southern U.S. states. They're in artwork they're in statues there's there's a weird alligator statue that is uh like santa claus but um being pulled by alligators they're the mascots of sporting Brilliant. teams you name it they're on they're on everything you know they're part of that sort of iconic culture from that that part of america in fact they are also unsurprisingly part of the first nations people of america's culture as well they have quite a few connections with alligators. Obviously, I've just honed in on one or two of them because there are multitudes of them from different parts of the alligator's range. They're seen, unsurprisingly, as a symbol of power uh, and of respect. And this is obviously for the simple reason that these are animals that live in freshwater ecosystems. So if you go into those areas looking for a drink and an alligator eats your friend, it's very much a, an animal to be respected, you know. <laughs> uh, they were also seen as spirits that were strong against uh, poisons because they were immune to the venom of many different uh, venomous snakes that live in the same sort of waterways like cottonmouths and, and things like that. Mm. So they quite happily eat them. So they were seen as this sort of symbol of uh, immunity 
But the First Nations people also ate them as well. They did hunt them for their meat, but they also uh, would have taken the teeth because they saw this as a way of protecting them from snake bites and basically taking on the, the immunity of the animal that they had, had killed and other dangerous animals, obviously, that could have uh, attacked them. Now, there is a legend of a supposed underwater panther that is uh, has been passed down through pictograms on rock art uh, that was found in the Ohio River Basin. It's thought to be around 800 to 1200 AD, the, the actual pictograms. And during mm. this supposed story of an underwater panther, it had supernatural underwater powers. It was considered to be a guardian of the waterways, similar to that of the uh, the Thunderbirds being guardians of the air. It's now believed that it's most likely, obviously, not an underwater panther, but an alligator. Um, mm. which, I mean, it fits quite nicely. Uh, they very much live in those areas, and it, it pretty much makes sense as a a, a you know, an animal uh, that people would have encountered. They obviously play an integral part in, in Native American cultures. Uh, nowadays, alligators are seen in almost a different light. I would say that they seem very similar to how rattlesnakes are. Um, at the top of the piece, obviously, I talked about how people revile them as just dumb lizards, uh, but some see them uh, as a source of money. They extensively are farmed in different parts of America for their meat for their hide, for their, um, well, just the, just having them there as an, a tourist attraction uh, is another reason. Some are hunted uh, as well in certain areas, but ever since the sort of main ban on hunting that came into effect, they've basically, um, you know, they, they've basically been relatively protected uh, in the Americas. The biggest benefit that alligators provide financially for a lot of the areas that they inhabit nowadays is actually ecotourism, uh, where visitors go out on swamp boats to go and see alligators in their natural environment, enjoy the the fascinating Florida Everglades. And if you put a ticket in my hand uh, to Florida tomorrow, Disneyland would be a close second in my mind. I'd be straight out to uh, to go and see the Florida Everglades and to see these guys in the wild. Yeah, I think it w- would be mine too. Alligators and then Star Wars World. Whatever it is. I mean, yes, I would, end, edge. I would definitely end up there. Yes. But uh, alligators first, I think, is is a definite uh, number one. Now, obviously, we can't talk about alligators and humans without mentioning um, the the fear that can come from the fact that, yes, alligators are incredibly dangerous animals, if not treated properly. And there have been fatal attacks by alligators on people. So there is often quite a lot of fear and hatred spread by misinformation, usually. They are powerful predators. Uh, But let's face it, we're stupid creatures. We tend to go into areas that we shouldn't go into. We blame animals when we're in their habitat. And there's one thing that humans are also very good at doing is building into habitat that animals inhabit and then getting annoyed when those animals just do what they normally do. And that's exactly what happens uh, in places like Florida, where housing has been built increasingly into more and more uh, habitat where these animals are found. To have riverfront and um, beachfront and swampfront even properties, essentially, where people's back gardens will back onto channels and rivers where alligators can quite easily live. So there is always going to be an issue with uh, human interaction. Now, the Florida Wildlife and Conservation Commission uh, keeps a record of unprovoked bites and incidents. Uh, And between 1948 and 2021, there were only 442 attacks, 26 of which resulted in human fatalities. Of that number as well, 303 people received what were considered major injuries, 139 suffered minor injuries over this period of time. There are obviously reports where people go missing into areas where alligators are and obviously never come back, occasionally adding to that number. But that's still relatively low in numbers-wise, 442 attacks uh, and 26 have resulted in fatalities. So yeah, it's a relatively low number of the 442 attacks 
26 of them being fatalities. So that's, you know, that's that's pretty low numbers. And the biggest thing that we have to obviously remember is that we have encroached into their habitat a lot of the time. And I know that's very easy for me to say, someone sitting here in the UK. Um, but the same would be true, I think, if the UK had large, dangerous predators, because, well, humans do- have done exactly that as well. Well, we did do that, didn't we, with all of our large predators? <laughs> yes. I it think was either reason... fear or an encroachment that, uh, that sent it sideways. I think the only reason that a lot of North America's predators are still standing is the size and scope of North America is so big that obviously humans have not been able to wipe everything out. But Florida is a classic example of humans encroaching into this habitat and um, finding it rather odd that these animals are still living in the place where they've always lived. Uh, Probably the biggest issue, though, is not so much humans getting attacked, but actually small dogs and small pets. Uh, into people's gardens if they have a waterfront property dogs go down to the river and alligators do exactly what they do when they see a small bit of food essentially so the easiest way to try and make things safer uh, is obviously have fences around the properties that are close to rivers uh, and and streams not letting children or small pets out into areas where obviously they could be very easily predated on uh, and learning to, to be just that little bit more safe around these amazing predators, which will quite happily catch and eat pretty much anything that they come across. Now, one final thing I wanted to mention um, is in, is just how important an ecosystem engineer these animals are. I, I can't stress enough just how much alligators play an integral part in the health of the river systems that they live in. So they clean up all of the the dead, the dying, uh, the elderly. You know, they basically keep the waterways nice and, and clear of, of muck. Um, they will also dig burrows in the winter uh, to find areas where they can hibernate and stay away from things. This obviously opens up riverbanks and creates smaller channels. Uh, it also gives space for other animals to go and inhabit those burrows as well. So they are really, really important in keeping uh, the soil aerated and uh, the river systems healthy in these parts of the southeast. Now, obviously, clearing up carrion and things like that does also have a secondary function. It keeps disease down and they stop the amount of diseases that could be spread in these areas. So without the alligator, these parts of America wouldn't be anywhere near as amazing as they actually are. And I think that the alligator certainly deserves a huge amount of love and respect from humans, far more than we give it credit for. They are not just uh, murder logs or, or just your mere swamp puppies. They are, well, I think, superheroes of, of the swamp. So there is the, uh, the alligator, a, a reptile that I've always loved. Like I say, I've been lucky enough to work with the American and the Chinese alligator. The Chinese oh. alligator, I'm fairly certain we will come back to. I'd love to mention uh, that species because it is somewhat different in its lifestyle and habitat and their size as well. They only generally get up to be about six ish feet. The one that I worked with was only about two, three feet long, but yeah. Um, so yeah, there's the, uh, the American alligator, right? Well, shall we, shall we climb out of the, uh, out of the bayou and, and head into, uh, our emails for this week? Yeah. Bing. You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails. Uh, I'm going to start things off with last week's question, which is, what is your favourite animal or nature-based game? If you remember, uh, we said that we were playing, well, I was playing Path of Titans, that um, uh, dinosaur survival game, which I'd like to add, the other the other night when I thought I'd play it as a Thalassodromius, a type of Tapajara pterosaur, I was flying around this nice little lake with lots of dinosaurs dotted around the edge, all drinking, <laughs> There's a carcass on the ground. I go to land to try and have a nibble because I was getting quite hungry. And then what kills me in, you know, out of all the dinosaurs that are hanging around this lake, there are T-Rexes. There are um, all manner of giant predators. The thing that charges out of nowhere to kill me in one hit is a Styracosaurus. Proof yet again that people completely and utterly uh, forget that herbivores themselves are incredibly dangerous animals. Mm. <laughs> yeah. so some of the responses we got from our uh 
like from last week's question. Um, I've come to us from Lindsay Kinsella, who said, uh, I used to love playing Spore on PC. That was an amazing game to play, and I spent way too many hours making all sorts of different creatures. It had limitations, but it was still a very good game. Uh, Tom Gray has put Ecology, then Wingspan, two very, really good board games. Uh, Wingspan's fantastic, actually. Uh, Jen Babs, Dinosaur Top Trumps from the Natural History Museum, although it does get a little dull when there's only two players. <laughs> hmm. I'm I'm going to just say now, I'm not very good at, at how you even play Top Trumps. It wasn't something I ever really came across, but I know, I know of what she speaks. Uh, Logan Temple has put Planet Zoo because let's face it doesn't get much better than that for zoo building games mm. <laughs> danny kevin has put does turok count um of which i put it's kind of oh, it, sorry it kind of does but only on the fringes um because turok did you ever play turok Aaron? uh i never played it I, I know of it i always wanted to get it and i never got i never got round to it it's it's a game where you basically hunt and kill dinosaurs. Mm. Um, they're not the most realistic of dinosaurs either. Uh, but he said, oh, I'll take that, that it's on the fringes. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it kind of counts, I suppose, in some ways, but um, it's a bit more a bit more niche, shall we say. Um, so that was last week's question. The question that we are posing for you this week. I, based... Before you do, Gareth, yeah, yeah. I, I did want to tell you something. I don't know. You might not want to keep this in, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you it anyway. I can't remember if I've already told you tonight, to be honest. But uh it's not really a natural history or, or nature game as such, but it does pay an exceedingly impressive amount of attention to detail uh when it comes to the wild environment and the wild animals Is in it. Is this gonna be that Pandora game? The no, it was I was I was playing Red Dead Redemption 2 not long ago, and I did no, I agree. I hogtied a Ku Klux Klan member and I took him actually to meet one of the, a, a member of the species that you fe you featured today uh, with, you know, predictable outcomes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? I, I'll it agree was with you. The, um, whereas Red Dead Redemption is not, you know, it's not meant to be about the about nature but you spend an awful lot of time out in some really amazing environments and the animals are a big amount of work has gone in uh, sorry a good amount of work has gone into obviously including animals that are specific to those regions you know yeah, they regionalize and... areas in the game and the animals that are in them are specific to those regions and there's a good amount of detail in them as well there's a lot of detail to their not just their anatomy but also their behavior it's yeah very realistic no, I, I agree i i think it's it's not exactly but i mean i would put it in the same category as turok so it's mm. uh you know it's sort of a a byproduct of an otherwise good game yeah so this week's question that we have for you um is going to be based on obviously talking about swamp puppies or murder logs <laughs> what is your favorite alternate name for an animal something like i.e calling a snake a danger noodle um you know those those sort of things that you tend to hear Aaron, have you got any uh you got any alternate names that you've called animals in the past uh yes um what did we used to call the kangaroos um i think it was like Tyrannosaurus deer or deer deersaurus rex, or was it veloc <laughs> deer? It was called it was velocidir, I think. Oh dear. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> oh, I, I, the main one that I'd go with, like say, is swamp puppies. Um, I'm trying to think if if there's any that come to mind exactly. Um, I mean, I did used to refer to the alligator snapping turtles that I worked with as um as my uh pond puppies, so. Because they did act like big dogs. They were they were amazing. Those things. They used to come over and just quite happily take the food from you. And and, and uh, they weren't aggressive in in any way. Have you heard of a, I... um, a, a a a pantless thunder goose? What is a pantless thunder goose? Is that by any chance an ostrich? It is an ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say a cassowary. I suppose you could refer to it as a murder chicken. Um. You know, something like that. But anyway, you you let us know 
your uh, your different names for different animals and uh, and send them into us on our Facebook page where that goes up up every week and um, we see what you guys have got to say. I just Hopefully saw a great this, one. This should be some so should be some fairly funny ones uh, this week uh, for for what we're going to get. But uh, you can get in contact with us in many other ways. You can get in contact to us via email. Uh, that's the Nat History Cupboard at gmail.com. Aaron, we got any emails this week? Uh, we don't have any emails this week, actually. Oh, well, okay then. Well, <laughs> that, that answers that question nice and easily. Um, you can also support us in a variety of different ways. And uh, you can support us in uh, you can support us by liking, subscribing, or giving us a review on whatever podcasting service that you're on. You could go to our fantastic T Mill store where uh, Drew has been tinkering around and putting up new merchandise and new T-shirts and things like that. So that's always a good place to go and have a look. Uh, but you can also uh, support us in other ways, and that can be uh, through our Patreon. And Aaron, who are our Patreons? Let's give them a shout out. And what voice are you doing in this week? I'm doing this week in my own voice. I thought you were going to do it in like a dodgy Louisiana accent. or Dodgy Louisiana accent. <laughs> um... It's not going to work well. We're going to lose all, all of our American listeners from yeah, the South. Yeah, I think I'd upset people. <laughs> Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, so our our, uh, our Patreon supporters are Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jen Greenhall, and Fogtober. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for your continued support um, into this uh, this new year. Mm, yeah, very much so. And uh, yeah, if you want to join the ranks of our fantastic patrons, you can do so by going and finding us on our Patreon page. Uh, but other than that, like I say, you can support us by just listening to the show. It's probably one of the biggest and easiest ways uh, to help us out. Word of mouth and telling people about the podcast is the biggest and best thing that you can do uh, for the, well, the the easiest, biggest and best thing that you can, in fact, do. Um, and that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode. So a big thank you for coming along, Aaron. Uh, thank you for having me once again. That's all right. I mean, you know. It's always a pleasure. Be very lonely if it wasn't, uh, if you weren't here. Uh, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. One does not simply hug a swamp puppy. They tend to bite back a little. <laughs>